0: The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Café as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters.
1: Whatever name we use for the world's latest and most prominent terrorist boogeymen, ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, the so-called Islamic State, it is likely that its mere mention will evoke feelings of dread, disgust, puzzlement, and or hostility. ISIS, as we'll call them here, after all, have claimed responsibility for militant attacks that have killed thousands across nearly every continent on earth.
0: But it's in Iraq and Syria, in and around the area claimed as their caliphate, that the group has been at its most atrocious. ISIS individual acts of grisly and sadistic brutality compare only with the horror of its widespread killing, enslavement and oppression of those it considers apostates or unworthy. But for all the misery created by the group, they're not the only source of turmoil in Iraq and Syria, or beyond. Far from it. In
1: fact, even as a coalition of local military forces, supported by Russian and Western air power, close in on the group's strongholds of Mosul and Raqqa, there are important questions that remain unanswered.
0: To discuss these questions and more, we're joined by Jacqueline Lepore, who's a research associate in global security and politics at the Centre for International Governance Innovation, and a former CIA analyst and Dr. Jamie Allison of the University of Edinburgh, who recently wrote an article on the background to ISIS called Disaster Islamism in Salvage magazine.
1: I'm your host, Philip Leach-No. First, I spoke to Dr. Jamie Allison from his office at Edinburgh University. I began by asking him, to describe how he sees ISIS.
2: ISIS is a counter-revolutionary form of mobilization, but a very special one, um, that it's a result of the, if you like, other side of the counter-revolution in Syria. So a very oppressive and bloody uh, and now really successful kind of suppression of revolutionary uprising in that country that began in 2011. Um, which has morphed into kind of civil war and general catastrophe. But the ISIS has been able to kind of live and build in that scenario of disaster. And that's why we should learn about them and what they did, because we're all going to be living sooner or later, I think, in a scenario of disaster. And you could even say that some of the deeply unpleasant political events that are occurring at the moment have something of that flavor. You I know, mean, obviously not exactly the same as ISIS, but this ability to kind of seize the reign, seize the moment in a time of collapse is what they've been very good at. And I think it's important to make this argument because there's quite an unnuanced, or I think, uh, well, wrong series of arguments made about Syria, which... Want to see kind of U.S. geopolitical power and imperialism at the back of everything?
1: So um, I think perhaps people would want to know if you could summarise in just a few sentences what what is the context for this? What can you can you give us a bit of background on on the civil war, uh, how ISIS have played a role in it, and and what you mean by counter revolutionary?
2: Yeah, I mean you can't really talk about ISIS in Syria without talking about Iraq as well, but. In 2011, there was a um, spring of 2011 kind of mass uprisings in Syria that w- resembled pretty much the ones that happened throughout the rest of the region, which then resulted in the the regime kind of repressing these these protests um, very, very brutally, and then people arming themselves to fight back against that repression, which then kind of spiraled as the repression got wars, which created this kind of dynamic where you had the formation of, first of all, the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, partially of people who were associated with the protests, also uh, people who deserted the Syrian army and Syrian Arab army, so the regime army. And that kind of brought in uh, competition from, if you like, outside powers, because these uh, groups who were Fighting against the regime, protecting the demonstrations, kind of patrolling areas from which the regime had been expelled, or were looking for, for money, for weapons, and so on. And they often got that through Saudi Arabia or through Qatar. And there was a developing Islamization. ISIS are a slightly separate phenomenon. So <clears throat> ISIS is, uh, if you like, the group of Al-Qaeda who saw their main task as fighting against the Syrian rebellion. ISIS's main kind of point was, as they put it, apostasy is worse than unbelief. So seeing the the Assad regime as as unbelieving, that's bad. But first of all, you have to get rid of the apostates. So the people in the the FSA, the opposition protesters and so on, who were um, abandoning, if you like, uh, their duty So that's one kind of strategic reason ISIS became a different organization.
1: Okay. So a a big chunk of the article you dedicate to exploding the myths surrounding uh, the formation of ISIS. So uh, can you tell us some of those broad myths and then why they are false?
2: I think the main arguments that are made are that the U.S. has funded uh, and trained, armed uh, Islamist groups in Syria to fight the Assad regime, and that those Islamist groups members became ISIS, or that there's some kind of, I mean, there's often reference made to a WikiLeaks document, which seems to be quite a low level intelligence assessment of somebody saying there could be a Sunni Islamist caliphate emerge in, uh, in Syria after 2011, which then people take to say, well, the US knew what was going on and they wanted it to happen. Whereas if you actually read that document, it, it doesn't demonstrate that at all. It's just a series of kind of speculations and it's not, it doesn't indicate any sort of US policy, but it's definitely true that the US has um, uh, supported certain groups in, of the Syrian opposition, and it's done this in two ways. So there's one legal or open, let's say, open way, which is a train and equip program. And that's got a specific mandate, which is for those groups to fight ISIS and Nusra. So it was designed to attack the Islamists, not the regime, and it hasn't been very successful. So. At one point, this program had trained about 50 men um, who engaged in, you know, a battle with Jabhat al-Nusra, they lost that very swiftly. So it's not been terribly successful. That's the congressionally approved, open, overt program. There's another program, which I think is what most people are talking about when they talk about U.S. kind of policy in Syria. It's difficult to see that as a wholehearted attempt to overthrow the Assad regime. Um probably more likely this was the U.S. seeing that outside states like Saudi Arabia or Qatar were getting involved in Syria and wanting to kind of have influence on the situation. And in fact, the U.S. prevented um, the Syrian rebels from getting anti-aircraft weaponry. So it's more about controlling and influencing that flow rather than overthrowing, using it to overthrow the Assad regime. Another example of this is the southern front of the Syrian civil war, Southern front of the kind of free Syrian army or the opposition who were basically the last bastion of the non-Islamist brigades. In some cases, even Islamists from uh, groups like Nusra were going over to join them rather than the other way around. It's been pretty quiet since um, uh, about a, for about a year and a half or so. Partially because Jordan agreed with Russia to just basically stop uh, allowing the kind of ammunition shipments to go through to to these guys, so not to actually cause the overthrow of the regime, but if you like to to control what was going on, and then they, they dropped them, um, with the result that when Aleppo was under siege earlier this year, there wasn't really any action on the southern front. All of this. The policy turned towards saying to these uh, fighters, you have to fight the Islamists, you have to fight Nusra, or you have to fight ISIS instead of the regime.
1: Another slightly different argument, which sort of imp- implicates the United States in creating ISIS in a very broad way, a crude way, is following the US invasion of Iraq, the disaster that was left in its wake, allowed for extremist organisations particularly sunny extremists, to rise up and form together and, uh, and, and become more militant. What do you think of that perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot, got a lot of weight to it, really. Um, it's impossible to imagine. If we hadn't had the counterfactual history, is a bit useless, probably. If we hadn't had the invasion of Iraq, we definitely wouldn't have. It's probably difficult to imagine having anything like ISIS. That doesn't mean that there's a conscious um, relationship or anything like that, but just that particularly the course of the US, of US policy towards um, the Iraqi insurgency from the mid, from about 2007, eight on, was to try and integrate, um, integrate the fighters, kind of local fighters, who who had been opposing the Americans, but were understandably alienated by the rule of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is the origin point of ISIS in the western part of Iraq, the so-called Sunni triangle. Very, very brutal. And this led to something called the Sahwa, where this largely Sunni groups were allied with the Americans in driving out or or defeating Al-Qaeda in Iraq, for which those groups expected to be kind of a quid pro quo. After the American withdrawal, they would be uh, treated better than they eventually were. And that kind of neglect and then repression of protests that happened in the western part of Iraq gave some, if you like, fertile ground for the return of uh, or the growth of ISIS, or this kind of revised version of Al Qaeda in Iraq.
1: What we have then is two, two disasters uh, following each other. Or you could you could argue, I suppose, that the Assad regime was a was a slow moving, ongoing disaster for quite a few people under its, uh, under its governance for a long time. But what I mean, you titled the article "Disaster Islamism." So how does disaster Islamism explain? origins and the development and the evolution of of organizations like ISIS?
2: So I see ISIS as something that can exist in a place that has a kind of stable ruling order. It's a, a way of piecing together the rubble that emerges out of these disasters and with a kind of Islamist or Islamic or theocratic Veneer on top, so it's a way of seizing the moment of catastrophe to promote your political project, and that's why I call it dis- disaster Islamism.
1: Okay, um, what, what strikes me is very clear from your article: the thrust is not to uh, tell us something new about ISIS, but it's more about the fact that we're getting the questions wrong when it comes to ISIS, and we have a we have a frame of reference which is which is skewed, um, and I think that's represented in, the, in this sort of mainstream media approach to it. It's like ISIS is a problem, and once we've dealt with the problem, we won't have any more problems, which doesn't seem to reflect what you view as reality. Absolutely.
2: I think these are the... I, I, I would rather not have to spend all of this time talking about the US policy and this kind of stuff, because I think what's interesting, in some ways terrifying about ISIS, are different questions, as you've said. Yeah, I mean, if, even if ISIS, ISIS is on the back foot... I think they're they're currently fighting against at least four different enemies, and they're kind of surrounded. So it's difficult to see them. It's to see them lasting. Who knows? But even if and when their caliphate kind of collapses, they, as you said, there will be more problems. And I would actually, I I wouldn't I I wouldn't want to take the the line of providing better solutions to security problems because one of the things I wanted to suggest in the article is that Isis is not just it's not just a symptom of the kind of dysfunctionality of the Middle East or of uh, Sunni jihadism it's actually something to do with the collapse of an existing order that it, we're living through everywhere and many the people People who go and fight for ISIS from Britain or Belgium or or France, wherever it might be, these are by and large uh, people who were born and brought up in those countries. Uh, Their response, what they're doing, presumably will have something to do with kind of marginalisation and um, uh, of Islamic communities, surveillance and so on, no doubt. But it's also one other kind of response to this series of political collapses or kind of anomie that has brought us to the world of Trump. So it can't it can be, it's important not to kind of divorce Muslims from the societies that they live in. So there is a crisis for Muslims because there's a crisis for the societies they live in.
1: Okay, can you, can you expand on that a bit more? Because I think it's, it's interesting to look beyond just the Middle East then. I mean, ISIS is is a particular, uh, as you said, uh, sort of manifestation of agency in a time of disaster, if you like, which happens to have an Islamist bent uh, and uh, and, um, and whatever else, which is provided by its immediate context. But the drivers, this collapsing system, I assume you see it as global, and you reference Trump. Yeah. So, so what are these other what what other manifestations should we be looking for? And I guess the bigger question is, if we've been asking the wrong questions, what are the right questions to ask?
2: So to start with the, the first one, the right question to ask is, what, what are you going to do about the disaster? What are you going to do in the disaster? That's the right question to ask. Uh, what is the alternative that is posed? So I think at the moment, um, just to expand this out a bit, maybe link the two questions, there's a really unhelpful... Um, kind of response to the rise of things like uh, Trump, or, or UK, or Marine Le Pen, which is to suggest people should kind of circle their wagons around the existing liberal order. And to try and reconstitute in some way, when that's actually what's collapsing, right? That's what's going into the void. And you probably don't want to be holding on to it as it falls down into the hole. That is the kind of thing that leaves People such as ISIS, or I would say other um, other of these emanations that have a program for after this collapse to to be stronger. So instead of doing that, I'd say think about how are you going to deal with this? What's what, what are you going to do differently? Um, how do we actually at least build a, some sort of humane society uh, out of the wreckage of the one that is that is going away? So. ISIS, in a negative sense, helps us see that, partially because it shows us the power of having having some sort of political idea, some sort of program. I think for the past 10 or 15 years, uh, the left especially has really kind of fetishized ideas of horizontal politics and absence of clear political direction or statements. And one of the things people don't understand about places like Syria is, that was also present there. You know, this is not; these are not just uh, there's not alien planets. So the people involved in Syrian revolution shared some of those ideas, and you know they lost out to people who had not just weaponry but uh, kind of discipline and a certain vision for what they want to do with the country. So that's a lesson to be learned.
1: That was Dr. Jamie Allinson from the University of Edinburgh. Next I spoke to Jacqueline Nippur from the Centre for International Governance Innovation based in Waterloo. I began by asking her to describe the current status of the military campaign against ISIS.
3: In my opinion, barring any wildcard events, uh, the campaigns to retake Mosul and Raqqa are simply a matter of time. Uh, Both are, though, going to be a very slow, long slog. The campaigns are proceeding methodically, deliberately, and very, very slowly. One thing that we'll need to watch out for uh, in the coming weeks and months is the tolerance for civilian casualties as these campaigns march on. There are indications that the U.S. has relaxed its rules of engagement, uh, which could result in greater collateral damage. Um, If this is indeed the case, then the campaign could speed up, but uh, the recent strike in Iraq that killed 150 civilians has caused a great amount of outcry. So that also could have the, um, the corollary, which is that the, the campaign could be slowed down. Why is it such a slow process
1: then, given that ISIS, from what we understand, is facing off against basically all of the world's powers, from Canada to Britain to uh, the United States and Russia and it? It, what, why is this still an issue? Why wasn't this resolved in an afternoon?
3: So I'll talk about that in the context of the Mosul campaign a little bit. Uh, part of why it's been going so slowly is that the Iraqi government has been trying to both isolate ISIS, but also prevent both mass displacement and widespread destruction of infrastructure and private, private property. So uh the campaign started off last October, and by January the forces had retaken East Mosul, and now they're turning their sights to the western half of the city. And, and this is the more difficult part of the campaign because West Mosul is the more populated part. So if the government is is trying to prevent, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of IDPs, internally displaced persons, um, from flooding out of Mosul and prevent the entire city from being leveled. They just have to go, you know, street by street, building by building um, in these kind of slow campaigns. And, um, that is clearly a lot more difficult than say, um, dropping a whole bunch of bombs and just like leveling the entire, uh, the entire city that would defeat ISIS, but there would be tremendous damage and tremendous civilian deaths if that was the case. So that's in part why the Mosul campaign is going so slowly, um, that's not to say that there are no civilian deaths because, of course, there have been far too many. And that's not to say that people haven't fled their homes because we've already had indications that hundreds of thousands of people have fled. But the goal is to root out ISIS in this major city without completely destroying the city.
1: Yeah, um, I guess, the, is, there, is there something else to this as well? I mean, in the fact that the, the nature of the organization of ISIS, I was just thinking the other day that in 1991, the U.S. led a coalition to rout Saddam's army from an occupation in Kuwait, and it lasted 100 hours. Obviously, the conditions are different and the structure of the organization is different, but maybe you could explain what the difference is between ISIS and a more sort of traditional military force.
3: Well, there you, were. you had a state uh, conducting a military campaign against another state, which is just a much more conventional form of warfare. And there are certain... Um, not always, but there are certain ideas like the norms and conventions of interstate war that simply ISIS just doesn't care about. Um, ISIS has no problem with the idea of using human shields, like, like many terrorist groups. Um, they have no problem embedding themselves into hospitals and schools and kind of melting away into civilian areas to, to make it a, a much more difficult process. And it's also very, very hard to, the idea of how do you um, identify an ISIS fighter. It's not like they walk around in uniforms. Um, and so that's kind of what we see also in the um, the Raqqa campaign in Syria, which is also this kind of deliberate, uh, slow-moving operation. It's basically they're going town by town, village by village in the areas outside of Raqqa, trying to push ISIS out. But it's um, it's it's not like you're you're capturing, you know, um, a conventional army's weaponry or, or troops or anything like that. It's more like this slow squeeze where you're circling or attempting to circle Raqqa um, in an effort to uh, deny ISIS uh, the territory that they operate in. But as you do that, they're they're going to try to blend in with the civilians. And that makes it quite difficult. So uh,
1: as you say, they're very different from a traditional military force. So, is it possible to defeat an organization like ISIS militarily?
3: Well, the first thing I would ask with that is, what when we talk about a defeat of ISIS, what do we really mean by defeat of ISIS? Is it the loss of territory that ISIS governs? Is it the, the decimation of its ranks of fighters? I mean, if ISIS loses all of its territory, it certainly loses credibility as it has staked its reputation on the idea of this caliphate and holding and governing physical territory. Uh, But it can still lose all of its territory and and still be a a force to be reckoned with if it goes underground. Um, That would be the kind of terrorist group that they have their their little pockets of safe havens, but they're not actually trying to run a government. They're just using that as a um, a base to conduct attacks out of um, possibly uh, intensifying attacks on the West, like the terror attacks in Paris and Brussels. Or are we talking about like completely eradicating their entire fighting force? That's a a much more difficult prospect. Uh, It's a a much more uh, difficult thing to do because uh, probably what would happen is as ISIS starts to to lose all of its territory and some people go to ground, you're probably going to have other fighters simply melt away. Um, whether they join other uh, rebel groups in Syria, or they look for other areas to conduct jihad, other conflicts acro- across the world, or they just simply go home—it's—it's um, not entirely sure. We have to start first figure out what is our end game. What does defeat look like? What
1: happens to the uh, the ideological uh, and physical infrastructure that ISIS has developed uh, once the organization has been overrun, if it, if it is overrun?
3: Right. So uh, I think we should look at this. uh, It's going to be different in Syria and Iraq. In Syria, no one really knows what's going on. Going to happen in northern Syria once Raqqa is retaken, you're going to have this uh, military challenge. This military campaign is suddenly going to turn into a political challenge because you really have this coalition of all these disparate groups working together against ISIS. And and once that threat is gone, uh, now they're all going to jockey against each other for uh, for political powers. And uh, right now, the Kurds they're likely going to press their advantage. And um, the Kurdish issue in both uh, Syria and Iraq is, is quite a complicated one because you have the U.S. on one side um, basically uh, supporting the Kurds and seeing the Kurds as allies in the, the fight against ISIS. And then on the Turkish side, uh, they see them as a, uh, a group that is a threat to the, the Turkish government. Uh, so once the ISIS campaign the, or the campaign to take out ISIS is over, this is going to be a major problem that they're going to have to address. And I think, however, that shapes out is going to have massive implications for what the region looks like in the end, or the the stability of the region. Um, also, back over to Iraq, uh, when you you put aside the issue of um, how are we going to handle this. Um, the, the Kurdish problem, you have these deep sectarian divides. Some would argue that the Iraqi Shia government's marginalization of Sunnis is is what created the, the preconditions that led to the rise of ISIS, the sense of massive disgruntlement and disenfranchisement. Um, also, in Iraq, you have that same sort of um, coalition of fighters from many, many different groups, uh, Iraqi army, Kurds, Shia and Sunni paramilitaries, Turks temporary allies. Once the objective is achieved, uh, these old rivalries are going to return. And uh, the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that this conflict in Iraq and Syria, even when ISIS is gone, the Syrian civil war is still creating a sort of security vacuum in some areas that allows extremist groups to flourish and recruit. Um, and not all of them have the same sort of objective as ISIS, but um, so ISIS's reputation for brutality is hurting them. Uh, but there are some that are sympathetic to their ideology, but perhaps not their tactics, and they could throw their support behind other extremist groups. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure if we're looking at an issue of an ISIS 2.0 as so much of an issue of you have a number of extremely experienced fighters who uh, will be looking for the next jihad, um, looking for the next conflict. And uh, they might not all coalesce behind the same group. They might go to various different groups. Um, I think a good example is looking at Afghanistan um, after the the war in the late 70s and um, in the 80s. Uh, Once that wrapped up, the fighters looked elsewhere for a fight, Chechnya, Bosnia, wherever. So we could definitely see that sort of dynamic happening here.
1: I I guess what we're getting is two sort of angles to look at the scenario that happened afterwards. And the one you sort of just uh, outlined is you've got all these, these experienced fighters, as you said, who may well go looking for the next fight. But then there's the other aspect as well, which is there are conditions which are very, very bad, Uh, And people are are living disasters and and they turn to extreme measures or extreme responses as as a way to cope with that. What are the conditions, sort of the more sort of social, structural, economic conditions that helped create ISIS in the first place? And have those changed over time or would they change with the removal of ISIS?
3: Right. Um, the the situation. I mean, especially after the Syrian civil war, is it, it's worse. You you've had. Um vast parts of the country be completely racked with conflict. You have had mass displacement like we haven't seen in um in years and years. You you have a breakdown of the economy and you have a whole generation that has been um completely um out of school. All these young children are missing years and years of schooling. So these are going to have reverberations for I mean the next generation, decades to come. And so without some sort of peaceful resolution to the war that provides reconstruction of the countries and opportunities for the youth. Um, you are going to have these exact same conditions that could lead to, if not ISIS 2.0, the same sort of risks of radicalization, the same sort of uh, sense of disenfranchisement and um, same sort of feeling that their governments are not representing them, that, that lead youth to be vulnerable to to look for a sense of belonging and a an opportunity. and And they're frankly vulnerable. And I'm not trying to say... Um, I really don't agree when people say like, "Oh, the the reason we should be concerned about refugees is because you know being a refugee makes one vulnerable to radicalization." That's not what I'm saying. It's not that simple. It's uh, it's that you have to have opportunities, and there's you have a whole generation now that is losing opportunities, and it's not like they grow up and say, "I want to go be an ISIS fighter" or "I want to join a terrorist group." It's uh, this long. Um, lack of, of hope or ability to live a life in dignity that um, slowly and methodically makes them uh, ripe for recruitment into these sorts of organizations.
1: Uh, I think it's a really important distinction there as well, what you made about refugees, because I think people get lost in that uh, sort of vagueness there. Um, Absolutely. So um, our other guest talked about how ISIS represents a particularly nasty manifestation um, a very with a very particular interpretation of Islamism, um, of how people elect to organize uh, and take advantage of a collapsing political order, uh, and in his view that relates to the specific disasters of Iraq and Syria that you've just you've just talked about over the last two decades, but it, but it also he puts it in the context of the broader sort of crumbling post Second World War political order and tying together issues like. Brexit, Trumpism, the rise of the far right in Europe. Do you agree with this assessment? I mean, or is ISIS something completely apart from that? Um, And if so, do you think we should be concerned about other ISIS-like phenomena, perhaps not ISIS very much like ISIS, but outside the mainstream, potentially violent, taking advantage of the situation, that kind of phenomena occurring elsewhere?
3: I do think there is a connection, whether it's a, a causal connection, I can't say, but there is definitely the two issues impact each other. The The U.S. is retracting in its foreign policy. It's pulling away from this idea of international integration and cooperation under the Trump administration. And this is also going hand in hand with the rise of populist leaders um, all over Europe and, and in the U.S. with Trump. So, the interesting thing about this U.S. and it's kind of pulling back from this uh, globalized cooperative um, sort of world order is you have these immense hawkish views regarding uh, the U.S. inserting itself in counterterrorism and military attacks against ISIS. Now, that's not new. What's new is how that's going hand in hand with this, this pulling back of this more kind of cooperative neoliberal political order. Uh, I personally think, honestly, that the threat of ISIS is somewhat overplayed. Um, particularly for people living in the West um, the the terrorism attacks are tragic, I don't want to downplay that but they're not an existential threat to the Western way of life and people are far more likely to die in so many more mundane ways than a terrorist attack Um, so with that being said, I think that important to note because what I think we need to emphasize is that when you're looking at military activities against terrorists like ISIS and terrorist groups like ISIS they work best when combined with diplomacy with cooperation with development with humanitarian aid and I think that's easier for people to understand if they stop looking at ISIS as an existential threat because what's the first thing you do when you think of an existential threat like you want to squish it but if you look at it as as you said this symptom or this nasty manifestation Um, then that requires a different solution. And, And my opinion is that solution needs to have carrots along with the stick. You need to have this diplomacy, cooperation, development, humanitarian aid. Um, you need to work on um, addressing some of those issues that, if we leave them unaddressed, could could be the root causes that cause um, this next generation to to join another terrorist group, whether it be ISIS 2.0 or something else. You You need to address the fact that if you only... Uh, conduct military activities, um, you're going to have a population that is, uh, receptive or sympathetic to those espousing anti-Western, anti-US ideology. It's this vicious circle. Um, people, um, with hawkish views in the West seem to assume that that's what the, the other, the scary other think of them is that they're completely anti-US. So then they carry out policies that reinforce those views. Um, so, I mean, ISIS is the nastiest example of all of this going on, but it's not the only one. Um, I don't know if we're going to see another group that is as brutal as ISIS because ISIS has had quite a lot of backlash for that. Um, But I wouldn't be surprised if we see other groups popping up in the future that are similar, like maybe slightly tamed down or perhaps harken back to the, the Al Qaeda model. Um, which was definitely brutal, but now seems quite less brutal in comparison to ISIS, which is a very, very scary frame of mind to be in. Um, and I think we've already, actually, this is already happening across the world. It's just not getting quite the media attention that ISIS is getting in that in and of itself. It's a scary thing that, um, ISIS is taking up so much oxygen that there's so many other groups around the world that are very, very dangerous and, and are growing in influence and power and no one's paying attention.
1: There seems to be two different world worldviews when it looks looks at this. Then I at least two, anyway. The 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 one which is this hawkish one, the you know this kind of worldview that it's the West versus Islam and ISIS is a manifest the truest manifestation of what Islam is. That's one worldview, and then there will be. I am inferring from what you're saying is that we should look at ISIS and other phenomena which are similar, more like antisocial behavior. they they are representations of things of people. Dropped out of the system. They may be some people may be very bad anyway and horrible. So maybe there's no saving them anyway. But broadly speaking, if the system was better, if society, if the global society was was better, people wouldn't be drawn to the, to those
3: phenomena. I I think that is absolutely correct because uh, one thing if I could just wish I could convince uh, skeptics of is ISIS is not Islam. Islam is not ISIS. It's they're completely different. Um, Islam is a, a religion of uh, peace, and uh, and so I just equating them as the two in that sort of really black and white uh, way of looking at things is just not productive, and frankly, just not right. So I think that the way that you put it is a perfect lens of looking at how we should be trying to address, counter, and prevent. Um, the next ISIS-like group from emerging. Okay, how how do you see the
1: situation in Iraq and Syria in the next decade or two decades' time?
3: This is such a difficult question. And in Syria, it's really going to depend on how the civil war ends, when it ends, if it ends. Um, That's going to dramatically shape dynamics in the region because um, it's going to depend on um, the the context of the peace agreement, the conditions, the terms, who are the main actors, um, who is in the position of power when it's being negotiated. Like right now, it's it's so difficult to even um, envision how that's going to look. Um, but rebuilding, is that's really going to depend quite a lot on the level of international involvement. I always say you can't simply declare victory and then stop all involvement. Uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, he's recently said that at least in Iraq, which is a different situation in Syria, of course, but at least in Iraq, the Iraqi government is going to take the lead on reconstruction and state building, and they already are doing this. Um, but that's not – there seems to be a bit of a disconnect because then you recently had individuals like um, General Mattis saying uh, we're going to have some small – we I mean the U.S. is going to have some sort of small footprint – and some forces in Iraq for a while to help out. And so it seems like there is still some discussion on what that's going to look like and what the the context and what the activities they're going to be doing um will entail in in Iraq at least. and But I think it's important not just to pull out. Um, Iraq and Syria have been absolutely devastated by the conflict. They're going to need tremendous amounts of foreign aid to help rebuild their societies and infrastructure. And if you don't have that assistance, uh, they're not going to be able to build a thriving economy that helps the citizens find jobs. They're not going to be able to uh, rebuild all of the amenities that a state needs to provide to, to help its citizens live um, productive and peaceful lives. So that's the big thing, is I I worry that in this very hawkish perspective, once ISIS is quote-unquote defeated, however that is defined, that uh, it's going to be mission accomplished. Let's head on out and go home. And that really is just paving the way for this cycle um, to repeat itself in the future. I think Afghanistan is a great example of that. Um, As you've seen with Afghanistan, just absolutely um destroyed in the conflict in the the 80s and um that led to this cycle of like warlord and conflict and and basically everybody fighting and then the the Taliban came in and uh the the public it's not that they supported the Taliban it's that they were so tired of um living in this conflict uh style of living with all this violence and uncertainty that they they welcomed the Taliban because they enforced security and they enforced a sort of peace. But the Taliban were immensely brutal. And then after 9-11, Afghanistan erupts into conflict. And you've still seen that um, the, the Afghan state and the Afghan government right now is still has quite a lot of trouble um, enforcing um, control and security across the country. So I think Afghanistan provides a really interesting um example that we should not forget about as we look at what to do in Iraq and Syria in a, a post ISIS post-war sort of world.
1: That was Jacqueline Lepore, a former CIA analyst who is now a research associate in global security and politics at the Centre for International Governance Innovation in Waterloo, Ontario. This podcast was a production of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.